Hi there. Welcome to Falling Up Radio. My name is Michael Harris. I got to tell you, I have notes all over my desk here. I want to make sure that I don't miss anything. You know, Falling Up Radio is really about bringing guests that inspire all of us to, you know, really live an awesome life. And, you know, I want to get to our guest as soon as possible because he's got an incredible story. Uh, but I really want to encourage you to Whatever it is for you, like create your dreams and your visions and your life exactly the way that you want it. And if something is going on in your life, change it. You know, we can do quantum leaps. We can do shape-shifting. I mean, why not? Um, and before we get to our guests, I, I, I always have to do a little shout-out for my own book, Falling Down, Getting Up. If you haven't got this book yet, you can go to the website. It's really easy. It's fallingdowngettingup.com. That's it. You get a free book uh, sent to you. I just ask you to cover shipping. So anyway, let's get right away to our guest because I want to give as much time to him as possible. And I want to give you a little backstory on this. Um, no pun intended. You'll understand it in, in a minute. But I met Michael almost two years ago, year and a half to two years ago, something like that. I, I've been an, an avid uh, student of somebody named Dr. Sarno, which was head of, head of clinical rehabilitation, NYU Medical Center. Michael will, will talk more about it in a, in a moment. Uh, but I saw this film coming out about him, and Michael was the producer. And I immediately like figured out how to get a hold of Michael, and it just so happened to be that the film was being in the Bend Film Festival here in my hometown of Bend, Oregon. And it was just like, wow, and, and Michael and I hit it off and the, the film played at the film festival and I brought a couple hundred people because everybody had to see this incredible film. But before we get, get to all of that, I also wanna talk more about Michael and who he is and uh, what some of your life story is, because it, it's really fascinating to me, Michael. Anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, you know, you bringing up the Ben Film Festival, like that, that was just an incredible experience because A, you know, you packed the theater and B, it's a really kind of open town. And I don't know if you remember, but we had that in just amazing experience where I had learned normally at film festivals, what you say is, does anybody have any questions about the filmmaking? But with this film, I've learned to say, does anybody have anything they want to say? Yeah. And a woman who was sitting in the handicap row raised her hand. And so I went over to her and she was so moved. It took her a full minute to speak. And um, it was a really intense minute where we were just kind of staring at each other. And finally, she just said, I had 25 surgeries. Yeah. I died on the table on the last one. And I didn't, I had a do not resuscitate, but they woke me up anyway. I have one scheduled next week, but now I get it. It was so intense. And, and she walked out of there and her whole being was so much lighter. It was really, that was one of the more intense experiences. But, but even after the film, I had like five or six other experiences. Someone came up to me and they'd say, you know, and, and what would happen a lot of times with the film is the film kind of brings up a lot of stuff for people. And then it's right here. Yeah. And so they walk up to you and you're like, wow, <laughs> it's right there. You can feel it too. It's just come up and you say, you know, I, that, I'm aware of that. And they're like, and that just helps it go. But yeah. they, don't, they don't know what it is, but they do know what it is. And they just kind of need some to acknowledge that it's there and then it goes. So yeah. that was just this incredible series of screenings there. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, you froze there for a moment, so I don't know whether it froze or, or not, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. I yeah. want to get back to this story. I, I also want to touch on kind of a little bit about you. You, you started yeah. out um, as a photographer in college, as I understand, and then you and your wife, Suki, started making films together. And then, then, then how many films have you made over the years? Close to a dozen. A dozen. Uh, about, about a dozen. It's, yeah. you know, some are still not done, but almost done, but at least 10 that are out yeah. in the world. And, and, and you've received numerous rewards from different film festivals and different organizations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a few. I mean, we, it's interesting because of the kind of work that we do, we have really had a hard time getting grants but we've got, we've got one grant, and that was actually a Guggenheim grant, which is the only grant we ever got. Um, wow. Literally the only grant. It's crazy. But uh -huh. it, it's a good one. But it actually is not very useful unless you already are someone who's a professor, because then it means you get both a sabbatical probably and a raise. But if you don't have any salary, you don't get any raise. Yeah. So it doesn't really mean as much to us. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just look across the, the banners of, of the films that I see that you've done, and there, there's normally a half a dozen or more awards attached to that particular film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, we, we do a lot of hustling. Yeah, yeah. A lot of trying to get them out there. It's a sure. lot of work. So we, yeah. we, we both have to kind of make them and distribute them. And mm -hmm. that can be kind of difficult. Like, that's actually kind of, um, both times I've been stuck on the floor in pain. It's had to do with the fact that we've made this film that's really important and really good, but no one will show it. And so that, that kind of that frustration and, and just pushing way past my own limits ends up yeah. slamming the floor. Thankfully, we've still had that same experience, but, but now I'm able to kind of deal with it really well. Yeah. Well, you know? look, let's talk a little bit about yeah. um, All the Rage and Dr. Sarno. And I want to mention before we actually get to the film itself, you know, back in the 90s, you know, I've been a student of yoga and a teacher of yoga for several decades now. Right. And having had my own health conditions, I've, I've read a lot of different types of health books and pain books. And I came across Dr. Sarno's books in, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to my teachers, Bikram and Rajasri, and I said, what is all this stuff about TMS? And they said, well, it's all yoga, you know. We let go of the mind and, you know, our body begins to heal and the pain begins to go away. And what Sarno really taught was a lot of the science, a lot of the research behind what the yogis have been saying for thousands of years. So that immediately hooked me in. And I read more of his books and I downloaded some of his stuff and some of the other doctors around him that um, supported that work as well. I, I looked at... Um, as well. And then again, then when the film came out, it was just like, yes, there's a film. I was so excited about it. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the film and uh, how, what, what caused you to create this film? I mean, because I know something happened to you. I know what it is, but the listeners. Yeah, yeah. Well, my father, when I was basically, I think in second grade or something, almost died of a bleeding ulcer. My father was a psychologist. Um, so we got over the bleeding ulcer. I mean, I remember going to see him in the hospital. Um, 
And a couple of weeks later, we had a very small fender bender. I mean, like almost a nothing accent. But then he got terrible whiplash that plagued him for years. And I would come home from, you know, he'd come home from work, get a whiskey and sit in this device that would lift up his neck or be laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. And um, in the early 80s, probably 10 years after that had happened, eight or nine years, when he'd been struggling and struggling, kind of ups and downs, someone gave him Dr. Sarno's book. And as a psychologist, he immediately got it and he immediately got better. And my dad was not... Um, it was kind of cheap, but he bought a, a box of the books and he just gave them out to everybody who had pain, whatever they did. So even when I was very young, it was kind of around. And Probably can like when I was- tell the listeners a little bit more who Dr. Sarno was? Sure. So Dr. Sarno was um, a rehabilitation specialist and he learned medicine in World War II, you know, as basically an army medic. Then he went to medical school. But when he grew up, in the time that he was growing up, um, Freud was still very much in vogue. I, I, it's funny, I read a post the other day about The Wizard of Oz, which when uh, Mencken wrote the book, it was like right around the time the interpretation of dreams came out, which so it was way under the radar. Mm-hmm. But when the movie was made, it was very much in vogue. So all these Freudian ideas are, are, are much more steeped even in the movie. And the point of that is, is that he went to medical school, learned the medical things, um, but right at the time that it was becoming much more mechanized and kind of like data driven. Um, but when he learned medicine, there was still really a deeper understanding of the psychological basis for many illnesses, the psychosomatic nature. So he did what he had been taught, which was the kind of the medical diagnosis and rehabilitation medicine in the 60s, which was like bed rest and physical therapy. And it was an inpatient program at the time. He brought back pain, would come to Rusk Institute for three weeks to two months to four months to get better, which is mostly about them getting this time to recuperate and kind of Mm -hmm. probably deal more psychologically than anyone realized. But he found, um, as time went on, the things that he'd been taught weren't really seeming to help people. So he went to look at the data that supported it, and he found that there wasn't any. So then he went and he looked at his patient's charts, and he found that 80% of his patients had two or more other psychosomatic illnesses. So migraines, ulcers, eczema, other things that were known to be psychosomatic. So he started to talk to his patients and tried to figure out what was going on in their lives. And he, he quickly noticed a pattern that many of them were very repressive of their emotions, but they were also what he would call goodness. They wanted to do for others. They were taking care of a sick parent. Their mother-in-law lived with them, things like that. And he would ask them, so your mother-in-law lives with you. How's that? He was, oh, they said, oh, it's great. You know, she picks up the kids from school and it's really helpful. And he's, he'd say, it must be also kind of difficult. Oh my God, it's awful. You know, like as soon as he'd open that door, that would be like, they would, he, and then he would make the connection and their pain would go away. Yeah. So as he further developed this and, and worked on it and looked at it from that psychological perspective and the medical perspective. So for instance, people were coming in saying, I have this herniated disc. And he'd say, well, that doesn't make any sense because you have pain here and you have pain here. And if it was really that disc, it would only impinge here. It wouldn't bother this side. So that, that, that couldn't possibly explain why you have this pain. Um, and he was right. But it took many, 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 many years for the science to catch up to him because no one was asking the questions that need to be asked because they've made assumptions. Um, and so now there's tons of data that supports what he said. Uh, but he was really dinged by his whole community and completely ignored because he wasn't doing randomized control trials um, and all of the things you're supposed to do as a scientist. But the thing to remember about randomized control trials is they control for the emotions. So in fact, they, they pretend that they don't exist because we can't really measure them and we can't really quantitate them. So we just say, okay, we're just going to control 
control for them. I mean, we're going to ignore that they're, they could be a factor because they're a wild card, Yeah, which is, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I know when I first started reading his books and going through some of my health issues, I mean, actually the smallest problem was my back pain, although it was debilitating at times and I couldn't move. What Sarno's books really helped me to do is to recognize that there was something psychological behind what was um, creating that pain and that the pain was really more a symptom of an underlying issue rather than right. really the issue itself. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what he gets to, which is that the pain is often, so you, you know, you brought up yoga before. So if you look at it from a yoga framing, it's exactly how you described it. If you look at it from Dr. Sarno's framing, he sees the pain as a distraction from these repressed emotions yeah. and that the pain is there to make sure that they don't come up. So yeah. it's your unconscious trying to protect you from these thoughts becoming part of the consciousness. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. It's yeah. true. Yeah. But it's also true to think about it as the pain is actually trying to get your attention to say, hey, you need to pay attention to this. Those are both accurate framings of it. What we have to understand is that there's something going on and the pain should be, we can use it as a message. So yeah. it's a distraction if you're allowing it to distract you, but instead it can be a message if you allow yourself to listen to it. Yeah. yeah. Now, what, what happened to you? I mean, I, I know something happened to you and it's, it's looked at in, in, the, in the film, but something happened to you and then you created the, the film well part of it was a journey of, of some of what happened but it was a long experiencing some of this back pain or chronic pain so when i was in my early 20s every now and then two maybe three times a year my back would go out and i would be stuck on the floor for two or three four days mm -hmm. but i would always kind of recover from it and then it would move on Mm -hmm. Around that same time, after a couple of years of that, my brother was in graduate school and he was told, um, and he had such terrible hand pain. He was told he had RSI, he had this, he had that. He, he had an early version of kind of like speak and type that, mm -hmm. that cost like, he got a grant of $5,000 to pay for it so that he could stay in graduate school because he couldn't do his research without it. Um, and my dad kept saying, read Dr. Sarno, you got to read Dr. Sarno. But for him, it was like something about it was just too scary and it seemed unscientific. And finally, when they told him he had to carve away bone in his collarbone to free the nerves in his neck, my dad really just was like, go and see him or I'm not talking to you again. Really got angry. And so you, my you lived to, in the same city as Dr. Sarno. I did. But my brother was at Princeton. I was in New York. My dad was in North Carolina. But my mm -hmm. brother came in, saw Dr. Sarno, and three weeks later, he called me up and he said, can I have my car back? Because he'd give me his car. He couldn't drive. He was bad. His hands were so bad, he couldn't even drive. Couldn't drive. He couldn't type. Um, wow. And then he, um, he, had to, uh, he had to basically, he almost had to give up everything. So he got better. And at that point, I read the book. And I banished my own back pain for 10 years. So I wow. didn't have it. I got it. I mean, I read the book. And I was like, that's me. I get it. Now, I'd have a little twinge of back pain. I actually didn't even have the twinges of back pain because I had kind of circumvented the process. Mm -hmm. Fast forward 10 years, I had a house I was fixing up, no real job. I mean, I quit my job because I, I, I had a crazy 90s or my, or my, my 20s. 
I was in a band. I didn't need much money. I lived cheaply. Then I was married and I had a house and a kid and a movie I'd completed that was really, I thought, quite important and nobody, I couldn't get them to show it. All of those tensions together slammed me to the ground over a period of six months. It was slow, slow. I knew it was happening. I went to my doctor and I said, listen, I know this is Dr. Sarno, but I'm in such great pain. Can you help me? And he said, ah, Dr. Sarno's a quack. You go to physical therapy. <laughs> it was like really difficult. So the guy in the coat is telling me, that's bullshit. Go do this. And I was like, no, no. And I had this argument with him. And I was also arguing about the movie I was working on, which was in his neighborhood. And I just, but I went because I didn't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, something, it wasn't working. I had read the book. It wasn't helping. I went to physical therapy. It got worse. I went and I had acupuncture and it got worse because um, I was not dealing with what was going on. And when it slammed me to the ground, um, I still didn't do anything. I didn't call. Now, when you're saying like, that you weren't dealing with it, you're talking about you weren't dealing with the emotions or. I wasn't dealing with the emotions fully, even though I was trying, I didn't really know how to. And I had lost faith in it because I was trying to do that work and it wasn't working anymore. So the doubt creeps in. So one of the things that Dr. Sarno makes very clear is if you don't believe that your mind body interaction is a causative factor, it's, it's not going to, you're not going to shift the, the process. It's going to continue the same way it is. And so he basically, at a certain point, he decided he was going to phone interview everyone who was going to come see him before they came and say, can you buy the idea that your mind might be a causative factor? And they say, absolutely not. He'd say, I, you should go see someone else. You know, yeah. it's like, I, you're not, you're going to waste my time and your money. So yeah. I, you know, it's, yes, you see someone else. <clears throat> so he's just, just really believe- clear about that really clear and it's really true and yeah. and so i i ended up going getting an mri i i don't even know how i got to the mri i was in so much pain and finally my brother now he was you know now he was a professor and he had money he said i'll pay for you to go because it was kind of expensive it was a thousand dollars and i didn't really have it and it just, you know and i and i didn't even if i had it i didn't think i deserved it right I, how am i going to spend a thousand dollars on that you know so i went and I didn't have a miraculous cure, but his force of belief, and he pointed out this MRI is bullshit. I slowly started to get better. And at no, that Dr. point, I said, Sarno said it was bullshit. That, that this MRI doesn't show anything. Like, this is nothing. And that's not even where your pain is. This is ridiculous. Um, and even as I was seeing him, I was thinking, you know, I need to make a movie about him. Um, and we had just finished our first major documentary. It was kind of following a character doing stuff. And, um, so I sent it to him and he liked it. And he said, sure, you can make a documentary. Um, wow. But I didn't know how to, how to make that movie. Because what we did was we followed people, something believed in against incredible odds. That's what we wanted to do. <clears throat> he wasn't fighting. He'd kind of give it up. Yeah. You know, he was like, take it or leave it. And so he said, okay, I've got this book coming out, The Divided Mind, which was his last big book. I was like, great, we'll film that process. So we kind of did some interviews that weren't really meant to be in the film. They were more research interviews. We tried to find some patients to bring to him, but that wasn't really working because nobody wanted to spend a thousand dollars. And there was so much resistance to it. We applied for all these grants. Nobody wanted to help. So over two years, we shot five hours of tape, which if you know my documentary is nothing. Like it was just nothing. It was just a couple of interviews where maybe my intern was filming as I was just discussing with him because we were waiting to film in action. We didn't want to do a talking head interview movie. Um, and we just couldn't figure out how to make it. So it just, it slowly kind of petered out. And at a certain point we were like, didn't know what to do. Um, Cause actually I called him up, I said, so when's the book coming out? You know, maybe we can film like the book events and film. Oh, it came out. 
You yeah. didn't do any booking it? No, oh, no, no, I don't do any of that mess. <laughs> so I was like, well, in, in, in that book, The Divided Mind, really, I mean, it took it from the, the idea of, of the back and the chronic pain in that way and really looked at it as, um, what, what would you call it, it an overall holistic, holistic yes. really a scientific view of right. pain. It was more for practitioners. Yeah. See, he wrote his first books because he was talking to other practitioners about it and they were just ignoring him. And he wasn't doing the kind of studies that would get published. I mean, he had some papers published about it, but it wasn't the kind of thing that would cause heat. So he realized he just, he actually had a patient who was a, a book agent. And, mm -hmm. she, you know, she suggested, he said, I was waiting for you to ask, you know, but he knew he needed to bring it directly to the people. So his uh -huh. first books are very um, populist. They're storytelling. They're not science-oriented. So The Divided Mind is really the science-oriented book. People often ask me, what book should I read? And I was like, well, it depends on who you are. If you need the proof, read The Divided Mind. If you like to go to the movies and you like to read stories, read that one. You know, it's just how is it going to affect you emotionally? Yeah. You know? And I, I got to tell you that one of the other books that really affected me was The Great Pain Deception. And I read that book and um, Stephen Osanich, and I read that book and I went, dude, how are you even alive? I mean, everything that happened to him. And then he came around and, and you know, met Dr. Sarno and had this amazing recovery from you name it. I mean, it was like 26 different things. It was just like phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, he had, he had a lot of rage and a lot of repression. And when he kind of learned to recognize that, it, it often is very curative. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. But it's really hard to recognize it. I mean, we, we build up so many, so many uh, ways to distract ourselves. There's so much dissonance from it. We don't want to feel it. And so we it can be very difficult to get to. Which, yeah. so, uh, you know, I'll just continue the story. But... Yeah. So we, we couldn't make that movie but about Dr. Sarno. It was just kind of on hold. And it was, the pain had started for me while I started a movie called Battle for Brooklyn. And it took us eight years, nine years to make that. And when that film was done, it was, it did really well at the first festival we brought it to. It did really well in New York and then no one else would show it. And just the frustration of no other festival showing it, nobody, no other theater showing it. I just kept driving and driving and trying to make it happen. And eventually it just slammed me to the floor. Mm. And when it did, I screamed, I literally screamed, grab the fucking camera. <laughs> Cause I knew in that moment that we had to make the movie and that the only real way to make it was if I was willing to be the character in it. So, so when, when you say you grab the camera, you were literally lying on the floor in pain when that was happening. I wasn't lying on the floor. I was screaming and writhing and mm -hmm. uh, my eyes were rolling back in my head. It was so bad, but yeah. I knew that, it had to be captured in that moment yeah. um, and that I would have to document. And it ended up being stuck on my office floor for like 27 days. I couldn't, I literally could not stand up for that long. Um, but I immediately started back just trying to push myself beyond my own capacity. I didn't allow myself to rest. I was having all kinds of epiphanies and trying to push myself to get better really quickly because we had finally, just before it happened, gotten invited by Michael Moore to show it at his festival. Wow. Um, yeah. and I couldn't walk I and mean, I couldn't sit up so I decided I was going to crawl to a cab 
and get taken to the airport. I mean, I literally, with my wife and kids, I got in the, I literally took me 20 minutes to get out of the house, but I was determined to get there. We got to the airport. I made it to the gate. I mean, I was in so much pain. I took a couple like muscle relaxants, but I was going to make it. I got to the gate and they're like, dude, you are not getting on this plane. We, if you can't sit in the seat and put on your seatbelt and you can't walk yourself on that plane, you're not getting on the plane. So, so, so the airline wouldn't let you on. They saw how sick I was. I couldn't see it. And yeah. then getting back home was so hard. It was so that that stuff is not in the movie because we didn't film that. But after I didn't make it, my friend had to come over because my do- my wife did go the next day, bought another ticket, and just went by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, someone had to go. But that's how like how how intense this kind of pressure we can put on ourselves to to push ourselves beyond our capacity. And yeah. so that was a setback, but I also realized what it was. It was me just not allowing myself to heal, you yeah. know, and taking on too much. Yeah. You know, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the, the beginning of, of the movie starts out with um, a couple of, of fairly well-known people, mm-hmm. Larry, Larry David. Um, and Howard Stern. And Howard Stern. And how do you connect with them? Because, I mean, that they really – that um, they had experienced some chronic pain and gone to Sarno and had a great deal of relief. So how did that come about? So, well, we knew about Howard Stern because more people know about Dr. Sarno because of Howard Stern than anyone else. But wow. it, was, it took five years to get them to agree to do it. And mm-hmm. what it took was um, finally, actually, our, my partner David interviewed uh, uh, Buckwald, Don Buckwald, who is Howard Stern's agent, because he finally got to Don Buckwald through his sister, helped him make some contact. And Don's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, can we interview you? So they went and interviewed him. And then afterwards it was, well, you know, what can we do? He's like, all right, you know, you got to get Howard. All right, I'll ask him. Cause he never even asked him. <laughs> so yeah. two days later we get a call saying, okay, you know, you get five minutes um, this day next week. So he gave us 12, but it was all 12 yeah. usable minutes. Yeah. And then with Larry David, he'd never actually talked about it publicly, but we were working on a, um, a political, a series of political shorts. And we were interviewing Chelsea Clinton for these young guys who had gotten money to do these, this stuff. And the kid was 21 years old, could barely stand up. Um, mm-hmm. And we're like, you know, you need to, you need to call Dr. Sarno. He said, oh my God, when we filmed that stuff with Larry David last week, he, he called that guy. So that's how we knew he was a patient. And we were able to just kind of reach out. And he probably assumed that Dr. Sarno had sent us, but it was just that we had that, that knowledge. Yeah. And interestingly enough, a week or two after I got up off the floor, a week or two, I was writing down all the people we needed to interview. And one of them was Dr. Andrew Weil. Mm-hmm. So I wrote down Andrew Weil's name. 10 minutes later, I got a call from another parent at my kid's school who did video work and said, I know you guys do video work. Um, can you maybe shoot this uh, Andrew Weil piece for us in a couple of weeks? Like literally, it was so weird. Wow. And so I was able to meet Andrew Weil and get his card. And that's how we were able to get, it took another two years after that to arrange the time to do it. But without those kind of weird synergistic elements, you know, these yeah. things, it's, you yeah. know, it's weird. And the, the, there was some Senate hearings as well too with, with Dr. Sarno. Can you right. maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so early on, he, you know, Dr. Sarno was a very, very private person. So even though he had saved Senator Harkin in 2000, 
he would never, he would say, I have a senator who might be, he wouldn't tell me who it was. He wouldn't make it possible because that was confidential, right? So he wouldn't do it. He was very above board in every way. Very different than people, most people are today. Like, um, so he, uh, but when that Senate hearing happened, he did thankfully tell me about it. So I went down with him, but Dr. Harkin actually requested uh, that there be a study on pain because he was head of the Senator Senator Harkin, right. He requested this study and um, it took a long, it took several years, but in 2011, the study came out and what it found was that there were, um, they, they studied 10 different treatment methods and what they found is that none of the treatment methods currently in use for pain work. None. None of them show scientific proof of working. Um, and further, that the cost of chronic pain had gone from $56 billion a year in, two, in 1986 to $210 billion in 2001 to $500 in 2010 to $636 in 2011. So you can just imagine what that S-curve looks like now, right? It's just like, oh, exponential. Well, and, um, and how much of that was... was opiates and, and other pharmaceutical pain medications. Well, I'm sure that that was part of the problem, but <clears throat> it's chicken and egg, right? It was like the, the opiates are, 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 are following the pain. But what we, what we actually detail in the film is we put two charts on top of each other. Mm-hmm. One is the rise in the wealth gap, yeah. and the other is the rise in chronic pain. And they track exactly. So as the wealth gap increases, so does the pain. And, you know, that's not scientific confirmation data, but it does tell us something about those expectations that we have for ourselves, the stories we tell about ourselves, that we should be doing better than our parents. We should be, you know, these expectations we have and that we don't live up to them, we feel like failures and we put ourselves under pressure to be perfect, good, successful. And when we don't reach those goals, it can be enervating in this really deep way that we're not conscious of and that can cause pain. So, I mean, if you really look at it like that, now, what's interesting is, so we had, on the panel, he had four or five other experts, but Senator Harkin insisted that Dr. Sarno be on the panel, and the whole panel that he had was like, why are we not paying attention to this? And it was a really profound moment that gave us somewhat of a heroic ending to the movie, thankfully. Yeah. Because he was really largely ignored and, and dismissed by all of his colleagues. Yeah. Now, Dr. Sarno, correct me if, if I, I have the, the dates a little bit wrong here, but Dr. Sarno passed away at 94 the day before the premiere in New York. Is that correct? Yeah, he, I think he, def- he passed away maybe at 93, but it, the following day was going to be his 94th birthday. Okay. And we didn't even know this, but it was the night that was the night that it opened. So he died the day before it opened. Wow. Um, and the obituary ran on the Sunday of the opening weekend. Yeah. Wow. So that was a pretty intense well, One of the things that pushed me beyond my capacity was I did a question and answer at the previous film we opened at the same theater called Battle for Brooklyn. So that was like, and, and I, could, I could barely walk. I was having all this hip pain, it was so bad. But I literally went to every screening to do the Q&A because I wanted to make sure that people understood how important the opening weekend was. Yeah. And so I did the same thing in New York and I was fine <laughs> this time because I was for the Dr. Sarno movie. But it was really intense because on Saturday morning, yeah, we found out. But by the afternoon, other people had found out yeah. and brought it up in the Q&As. So we were, it wasn't our place to say anything because it wasn't public. But if someone else brought it up, we would acknowledge it. Yeah. Um, but it was very intense to be having that experience in that weekend. But also, so many people also came because it was, they did find out and they wanted to see it yeah. and wanted to be with other people. Yeah. Now, I, I heard also Dr. Sarno mention in the film that 
Um, he was probably one of the people that suffered just as much as anybody else from TMS. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's how he understood it. It's like he understood what was going on. But in his own case, almost once he knew about this, once these, these issues would come up, he would go and he would meditate on it, think about it, and he could usually figure out the thing that he was repressing and he could get it to go away. But he yeah. did suffer from these things. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that happens in our film is my father retired and literally fell apart again. And I think mm -hmm. one of those things that happens a lot um, for people is their sense of themselves, their agency, their power has to do with the work that they do. And when they retire, they feel powerless and there's a lot of rage that happens. And if it's not dealt with, it can really bring back up stuff that had been going on earlier in one's life. And I think it's really important to acknowledge this and, and, and know about it. And he did know about it, was still wasn't really able to deal with his own stuff. And, yeah. and if essentially that's what hurt him. And I, and I think the same thing is true with Dr. Sarno. His memory had started to go well before he retired, yeah. um, but he was spot on in the office and he just knew what he was talking about. It was the things outside of that work that was where it, the things happened. And when he stopped doing that work, he lost a lot of capacity. He, he was in the hospital much of the next year with a broken mm -hmm. hip and all kinds of heart problems and things. Yeah, yeah. Now there, there's a number of doctors today that continue to uh, practice with what they learned from Dr. Sarno. Right. Some, some different people around the country is is there any type of movement going on, so to speak, of, of people or doctors taking a look at this type of um, work and helping yeah, with that? Absolutely. You have Dr. Schubner, um, Howard Schubner is doing a study right now with a, a major pain specialist that is showing incredible results in Boulder. You have Dr. Clark, who works with Dr. Schubner uh, with the PPDA, which is the Pathophysiological Disorder Association. Dr. Clark discovered all of these issues with the with the gut. Um, he works in Portland um, mm. as a gastroenterologist and his book is called They Can't Find Anything Wrong. Yeah. Um, because when there's no uh, physical signal as to what's going on, oftentimes you still have terrible gut issues. And when he found he found that when he started to talk to patients, just much like Dr. Sarno, he was able to figure out what the story was and then they would improve. Yeah. 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 And it, it, there's somebody in Los Angeles too, isn't there? Well, there's there's Dr. Um, Dr. Schechter. Right. Dr. David Schechter, who worked with Dr. Sarno. But he's also connected with um, the pain psychology clinic there. And so a lot of his patients go there. And that pain psychology clinic is is by run by Alan Gordon. It's also very successful in treating patients. Yeah. I think they have something like 30 therapists working there now. Yeah. Now, and I, I know this goes down a whole nother rabbit hole. But I, I look at Dr. Sarno's work and, and some other people's work, and I think about the issues that we have today in our country about health care and the cost of health care and everything else. And there's a doctor that I know that he was a clinical staff president of five hospitals, uh, 600 doctors, and he said if people, you know, did yoga and did Dr. Sarno's type thinking, he said we could close four out of five hospitals. Yeah, I think it's true. Let me turn on the light. It's gotten dark in here. Sure. I don't yeah, have any lights. yeah. Yes. Let me see if that helps you out here. That's a little better, right? Perfect. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, no worries. It was bright out when we started. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, I think there's two things. Capitalism is a problem because it puts all this pressure on us. I mean, I was thinking about this just yesterday. You know, why is it so much worse now? Why is it so much worse for the kids? I mean, they're literally getting hundreds of messages every day that say, you're not good enough and you need this to make you better. Let me sell you this. Let me sell you that so that you can be better. And so they're constantly being told they're not good enough. And we've all, we've all been dealing with that for years, but the science of, of the ability to kind of undermine people is greater. Yeah. But also it's those same forces that run a capitalist medical system, which is it's really profit driven. Yeah. You know, doctors get paid inordinate sums. They also get charged inordinate sums to become doctors. And I think many of them are less thinking of the healing arts and how do I have a successful career? And in yeah. order to have a successful career, you have to go with the program. In order to go with the program, you have to accept things that are terrible. You have to be willfully blind to the things that you're being taught aren't true. Because if you go to your advisor and say, I think this thing you're teaching me isn't true, they'll say, well, maybe you need another advisor. Maybe you need to be in another program. So there's these kind of like perverse incentives to just go along, go with the flow and go with the program, even when the program isn't working. Yeah. Well, I, I know too, somebody here locally where, where I live, um, that is a physician in a pain clinic with some, some other doctors and is very familiar with Dr. Sarno's work, understands how it works, yet, you know, they're still doing injections all the time and, you know, the traditional pain methods. Right. And I said, well, why are you doing that? And, and, you know, the response was that they were doing it because that's what their patients wanted. Exactly. But it's kind of like if you have a... a a bratty child and the bratty child doesn't want to put on their diaper at bedtime and you agree to let them go to sleep without the diaper and they pee all over the bed, whose fault is it? Yeah. You know, if yeah. you let the inmates run the asylum, then the asylum's going to be a nut house. Yeah. Well, it's, it's part of the, that, the economics that, that you mentioned, you know, there's that fear, I think, by, by many physicians that if they don't do the traditional way, they're not going to earn any income. And I know that was a, a issue with Dr. Sarno and, and some of the other doctors as well that practice this type of medicine. Right. But I think then you have someone, um, and I'm trying to, I'm forgetting his name right now, but the guy, there's a guy in Chicago, uh, my, my, my brain, once I turn you know, close to 50, I forget names a lot. But um, he, he left his hospital and started his own clinic because they weren't referring people to his TMS program. And now mm -hmm. that he has the clinic open, he's doing really quite well, but he had to just take that risk. Yeah. Um, because obviously patients tell other patients and tell other patients that this really works. Yeah. Especially if he needs that to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, the, the, whole, the whole system is completely insane, really. You know, if, if we know that the things that we're doing don't work and we continue to double down on them, uh, you know, should, I don't know, should we be holding these people up as experts? I mean, yeah. there, was a, there was a study from the Lancet that somebody posted yesterday that said that people who are experts on back pain actually know less about back pain than people who are not in terms of the medical field because they're so stuck in what they want to know that they ignore the counterfactual data that says that things they're doing aren't working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I know too, you know, there's, it, it's mentioned in, in your film too, the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience. Right. I've delved into that and, and um, there's an organization here where I live that deals a lot with that and there's a lecture series recently about it. And when you dive into that, 
and understand that process, that etiology of what happens as a child and, you know, even six months, eight months, nine months, 12 months old, you know, manifests itself later on, maybe at 30, 40 years old in back pain. Right. Or heart disease or cancer or obesity. I mean, depression, addiction, all of it. All these terms. I mean, so they're all like, I think one of the things that, all right, so the last line of all the rage is the day that Dr. Sarno is retiring. He's gotten this book that says, thank you, Dr. Sarno. Mm -hmm. And he just looks up to me and he says, it all comes down to one simple idea, that the mind and the body are intimately related. That's it. That's the whole story. And it's the last line because it's true. It is the whole story. And it's the kind of over idea of specialization or specification that we kind of constantly have, like it's this or it's that, when really the truth is just, is about balance, is that the mind and the body are literally not the mind and the body. The mind and the body are the mind-body. There's no separation. And when we try to kind of talk about it in ways that demand separation or pretend that, like, for instance, that the emotions don't exist or matter, it's literally insanity. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy talk. Yeah. I mean, and so, so much of what we need to do in this work is, is really go back to that very simple idea. Now, some people become uh, very focused on, like, doing it the right way, and there's one way. It's really simple. Yeah. The mind and the body are intimately related. And once you recognize that and you pay attention to what your body is telling you, because yeah. the Dr. Sarno again saw it as distraction, which is it, how it acts until you turn around and look at it. And then it's a message. Yeah. Once, once you stop allowing it to be a distraction, you turn to a message, you start listening to it. It's just like a kid who's having a freak out. If you yell at the kid for having the freak out, the kid's going to keep freaking out. But if yep. the kid's having a freak out and you get down, you give it your undivided attention, the whole thing goes like this. Yeah, and really the same thing, your body is dying for your attention. Yeah. It needs you to know that you're repressing this thing. And it's literally just recognizing it oftentimes. Yeah. Like that, yeah. you know? Well, it, even as a yoga teacher, I mean, there's, you know, the yoga or anatomy of yoga and then there's the mind-body aspects, so to speak, of yoga. Right. And I've tended to focus more on the mind aspect of yoga rather than the precise position that you should be in in a particular posture. Right. And that interaction about what's going on here in relationship to the whole being, you know. And I've had students that I've brought up the Dr. Sarno ideas with and some of them were resistant, I'll say highly resistant. And then I also had some that I was able to bring it up in 10 or 20 years of back pain was gone overnight. Yeah. When, right. Once they understood that aspect of what was going on in, in the unconscious and the subconscious that was manifesting itself, you know, yeah. in the physical. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and the hard thing is like those stories are really powerful, but then other people interpret and say, well, I didn't have that. So therefore I don't have TMS or I don't have this thing instead of going, Oh, I'm really not getting there yet. I'm on this journey and it's going to be, it might, for me, it might be a long journey, but if I stay on that journey, I'm going to, I'm going to reach that point. It, yeah. It's really important that everybody realize that they have their, their own path. 
So even that woman that we were talking to, uh, talking about at that screening, you know, she had her own path, right? And that was the moment she reached a real, she reached a plateau in that path where she was going to go somewhere. She's now she's on her way towards another goal, but it took her a long time. She needed that moment. And when she got there, it was clear she was on her way, you know, Um, but it took a long time to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And it does sometimes. Absolutely. So as we're coming to, the, the end of our discussion today, first of all, it's been really great, and I'd I love to have you come back. I know we could we could have many, many, many discussions surrounding well, this. We should just start the Mike and Mike podcast. There, there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can viewer, where can the listeners uh, see your movie, your film? Great. Well, it's on alltheragedoc.com right now, a, you know, the name of the title of the movie spelled out with doc as in documentary.com um and it's it's on vimeo on demand but in a couple of weeks it'll be up on amazon and itunes as well which will make it a lot more accessible to people wow that's great so just search it online and then they'll be able to find it yeah they just search for all the rage movie all the rage doc yeah and then other than that do you have any suggestions for um anybody that May, may want to explore more or maybe right right they, now they could order your book i think it would help <laughs> oh and, and it's free i'm getting up it's yeah. a great book i i'm having my daughter read it you know i oh, think really? i think it's, it's important to, for everyone to to read all of these different stories so there's two things about that i think it's important to read a lot it's also important to let go of the things that you read to take yeah. in what's important and not think that each thing is the way to do it or the path Everyone has their own path. Um, we have on our Facebook page a lot of other videos and outtakes from the movie. So it's just all the rage. Or it's, I think it's the story of pain on Facebook. But if you search for all the rage, it should come up. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there's so many resources. And once someone gets into it, the, the problem is not that the resources aren't there. It's that they maybe distract themselves with the resources. So yeah. I think the thing that I found to be really important is journaling and meditation. And yeah. Actually, I was going to write a post tonight about how people should spend all of December starting to practice and try out meditation so that when they make it their New Year's resolution, they don't start and say, I can't do this, that yeah. they've they failed a little bit. Like yeah. meditation is both so simple and so hard for people, but yeah. it really does require us to become response able, as Dr. Gabor Mate says, yeah. you know, that we oftentimes people hear, oh, you know, that the pain is caused by your emotions, then they feel like you're saying that they're responsible for it. Well, what he says is that you should look at it as being responsible, able to respond. Mm. So if you know what role your emotions play, then you can respond to that. If you're blind to it, you can't do much. So the more that you look to your emotions, the more able you are to respond. You know, and on that level, I would say, I think, some of the greatest advice I ever got was to uh, do Michael Brown's The Presence Process Meditation, mm-hmm. which is a 10-week program. Yes. It's a simple book. It's, uh, it's cheap on Amazon, but it's really profound. And when I say responsible, each week you go a little bit deeper. And in week three, you're taught that when, you're, when you feel angry, you, you need to kind of step out of a situation and realize that that anger is about your own framing, that you're responsible for that. Even though someone made you angry, you own that anger. And yeah. it has something to do with your own expectation, your own judgment, self-judgment, judgment about how other people should be. And if you can go to kind of a deeper empathetic place for yourself, you can kind of let go of that 
and you actually find yourself having increasingly less conflict and much more resolution. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, uh, again, I'm, I want, want to make sure I've, I've got all these notes. I want to make sure that covered everything. I think that we did. Again, the listeners, they can go, and I'll post this to alltherageoc.com to see the film. And again, Michael, I really want to thank you for being here. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes in life, our experiences, our challenge, our difficulties, uh, perhaps are there for us to overcome them to help other people along the journey too, for when, yeah. when that makes sense to them. So yeah. even though you were withering on the floor for 26 or 27 days, you know, what came out of it was this really incredible film. And yeah. I think I probably have watched it eight or nine times at least. And wow. every time I watch it, I get something else out of it. It's great to hear. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's interesting though. It, it doesn't do what people expect from a film. So people have a hard time with it. it you know, the world is a very strange place, that's <laughs> what I'll say. And so when we, we want what we expect, and if we don't get what we expect, then we're, usually, we're often upset. Yeah. But I'll say the thing about the film is I didn't want to make a personal film, but as we made it, it became increasingly clear that that was the way to help other people connect with their own emotions. Yeah. And that's what's made it really successful in terms of healing people, you know? So that, it's great. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. And, and thank you for the willingness to go through the pain to get to the film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and thank you for all that you do. It's really appreciated. A absolutely. You know, so a again, this is Michael Galinsky. Uh, I call you a pro prolific documentary film producer and director. So, so keep doing all, all the great work that you're doing. And I'd love to, again, have another discussion um, again, and, and have you back on and perhaps find some areas that we can dive deeper into. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Sounds, <laughs> sounds good. Again, everybody go to alltheragedoc.com and uh, we'll see you soon. Talk to you later. Okay. And next Thanks. time we'll discuss your book. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>